this morning as we continue our sermon series in the Gospel of John, we come to uh, a real wonderful passage in John uh, chapter 15. And so, if you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Our reading today is from John chapter 15, verses 1 through 17. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in in the vine. Neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard, for all that I I have heard from my, my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you may, that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one one another. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true. It is given to us in love. Uh, You can be seated. Well, in our passage this morning, uh, we come to really the most basic fact uh, of the Christian life, maybe that thing uh, that is so fundamental uh, to what it means to be a Christian, which is what theologians call union with Christ, our being joined together with Christ. You know, you could say that union with Christ, coming together with him, is really the, the point of the entire Bible, right? That in our estrangement from God because of sin, God sent his son Jesus that we could again be made one with him in communion. The word that we use at times to talk about what Jesus accomplished on the cross, atonement, literally means as it's broken down, at one meant that Jesus came so that the two, God in his holiness and goodness and humanity in our brokenness and fallenness, could become one again together, joined in union through Christ. You know, this was uh, fundamentally the way that the early Christians thought of themselves. 
that to be a Christian was to be in Christ. The Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, uh, never once uses the word Christian to describe uh, the early followers of Jesus. Neither, for that matter, does Jesus use the word Christian. But what Paul uses over and over again in hundreds of different iterations is various versions of the words in Christ, one with Christ, in Christ, into Christ. That Paul thought of what it meant to be a Christian was to be someone who is in Christ. The great Protestant reformer John Calvin put it this way. He said, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, that all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. Right? All that Jesus accomplished, if it's outside of, of us, it means nothing to us until we're joined to him by faith. The English Puritan uh, theologian John Owen put it this way. He said, union with Christ is the greatest, most honorable, and glorious of all the graces that we are made partakers of. That all that Jesus did for us, justification and sanctification and glorification and all of these big words that we often use, that all of them come to us through union with Christ. So dear was this to Owen that on his tombstone, you can visit it to this day, on his tombstone it has his name, his dates, and the one word, communion. Communion, that he lived for communion with God. And yet, if we're honest, in our daily experience, it doesn't feel like this makes all that much of a difference. Right? It doesn't feel like we live our lives tied into Jesus in this kind of mystical and sweet, intimate communion. Sometimes it doesn't feel like much of anything at all. There's this great movie uh, that came out in 1983, uh, before some of our time, but uh, called Tender Mercies. It won a couple of different uh, Oscars, one for screenplay and one for Robert Duvall, who played the lead. Uh, and he played a broken down and addicted former country music star named Max Sledge, great fictional country music star name. And so he's down on his luck and he falls in with a young widow and her son, who's conveniently named Sonny, and they bond together going through this life where they've uh, struggled so much, each suffered uh, so much in their own different ways. And at one point in the movie, near the climax, um, Mac and Sonny in a small local church get baptized. So they have this amazing experience of forgiveness and coming to the font to be baptized. And then it cuts and it shows them driving down the road there together. And Sonny, the child, uh, says, well, we've done it, Mac. We're baptized now. Max says, yeah, we are. Everybody said I was going to feel like a changed person. I guess I do feel a little different, but I don't feel a whole lot different. Do you? Max says, not yet. Sonny says, you don't look any different. Do you think I look different? And Mac looks at him through the rearview mirror and says, not yet. And I think that sums up a lot of our experience of Christianity oftentimes. Right? They're baptized into this new reality. No longer strangers, but friends of God. No longer isolated, but brought into Christ by repentance and faith. And yet, they don't look a whole lot different. They don't even feel a whole lot different. And that's so often the way it is for us. Christianity doesn't necessarily make a visible, physical difference in your life. You don't, you know, all of a sudden start glowing as though backlit. You don't, you don't sprout a halo. And some days, we don't feel much different at all. Right? Some days it doesn't feel to our internal life like much has changed. But everything has changed. 
if you have become one with Christ. You know, I think one of the challenges in this is that it takes some imagination, doesn't it? To live as though something is true that you can't see or sense or, or sometimes even feel to be true. That our imaginations uh, are sometimes where the, le- uh, where the link is at its weakest. You know, we think of imagination and we think of fairy tales and stories and fiction. But imagination is simply, it's not that. It's not relegated to fiction. It's the ability to image, to, to, to imagine anything that's not physically in front of you right now. If I were to ask you, what does your mother's face look like? Unless your mom happens to be sitting here with you, you have to use your imagination. You have to remember, what, what does mom's face look like? But it's a real face. It's really there. If I were to ask you, what do you want to eat for lunch after church today? Right? So don't, don't go too far down the road. I want you to pay attention. Um, but... <laughs> You can probably picture it. You can start to envision what it's going to taste like, sense like, you know, what the restaurant's going to look like, what, that, what your home's going to be like. You know, that takes imagination. Imagination is the ability to live as though something is true, is real, even though it's not immediately visible to your senses. It's not immediately sensible. It's what the author of Hebrews uh, says of faith, is that it is, faith is the conviction of things not seen that it is the assurance, the conviction that something is just as real, that your union with Jesus is just as real as the color of your eyes, the color or amount of your hair, your height, your weight, and even more so, that it's real. The biblical authors seem to recognize that imagination, that it takes imagination to come to understand what union with Christ is all about. Rarely do they try to get right at it. Usually they're using metaphors and word pictures. Right, the Apostle Paul says that our union with Christ is so intimate that it's like the, mis- the mystery of the union between husband and wife. Other places, he says, no, no, it's like a body. It's like Jesus is the head and we're the body. You know, you can, you can separate yourself from your wife, but you can't, or you, you wouldn't want to cut off your own arm. Right, he says you're just as united to Jesus as the parts of a body are to the body itself. Peter Peter goes on to say, no, no, what it's like is you're like this temple that's being built up with living stones, and Jesus is the cornerstone, so we're united to him in this building. John, his strained, we've seen over the course of this uh, gospel, at the language, he said that Jesus is like a good shepherd and we're the flock. He's like this living water that we take into ourselves that then becomes a stream of living water flowing out of us. And now here in John 15, he gets to this image that says, no, no, Jesus is the vine and we are the branches, right? Jesus is the stock. He's the vine. And and the image of union with Christ is that we're grafted into him so that his life flows into us, his divine life flows through us, leading to fruit, that we would bear the fruit of love in our lives. C.S. Lewis once said uh, that when he became a Christian, What was required was the baptism of his imagination. The baptism of his imagination, his ability to live as though these metaphors, this world that the biblical writers paint, is real and true and lasting. And so we're going to talk and hope to stretch our imaginations a little bit this morning as we think about what it means to live in union with Christ, what it means to live joined to Jesus You know, simply what it means to be in union with Christ, we're going to look at it in two parts. It means on the one hand, you are in Christ, 
And then on the other hand, Christ is in you. You are in Christ, and Christ is in you. One of the places that Paul puts it most clearly is in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I was in him crucified, and now the life that I live, I live in him, and he lives it in me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So first, what does it mean that we are in Christ? Well, it means that everything that's true of Jesus in the Bible becomes true of us. That just as he lived a righteous and holy life, when we're in him, God looks at us as righteous and holy. That's what John means, or Jesus means in John here in verse 4. When he says, you are already clean. You're already washed. You're already clean by virtue of being in me. It's though you lived a perfect life. It's though you died and you were raised. And so you were raised up into new life. One way uh, that, uh, that thinkers, theologians will talk about this is corporate personality, that we, the church, the people that Jesus has gathered to himself, are one person in Jesus so that what he's accomplished is credited to us. You know, one way that you can think about this, I'll throw a few examples because it's kind of hard to wrap our minds around. When it says that we are in Christ, one way to think of this is the way that we pull for a sports team. Right, if you, know, if you remember what it was like, uh, it was only a couple months ago, so I hope you remember, uh, to live in Jacksonville when the Jags were going, when they were making our playoff run that was cut tragically short. Right, if you remember what it was like when Leonard Fournette scored a touchdown in Pittsburgh. Right, Leonard Fournette doesn't just get up and celebrate. Right, it's not just, it's not just that he did something. What happens? First, his teammates all rally to celebrate. Right, they all come together just as though they had scored the touchdown because they're all on the same team. And not only that, but the fans erupt. Right? The fans are cheering. It's like they scored the touchdown. They're cheering, those brave souls that ventured to Pittsburgh. Yeah. <laughs> right? But not only the fans in the stadium, but you in, in, your, in the comfort of your own home or sports bar or wherever you were, you got up and you cheered as though you had done something. Uh-huh. Right? You were celebrating. And if you happened to be a fan that couldn't watch the game, when you got together with another fan, what did you say? You said, how did we do? Did we win? <laughs> right? That there's this corporate solidarity that makes it so that the success of one person, we all all of a sudden are taking credit for it. You probably couldn't run a 40-yard dash in 50 seconds, but when Leonard Fournette, this finely tuned athlete, scores, we did it. We all did it, right? What an accomplishment. And so we're all located in the one and taking credit for what he's done. One biblical picture of this, if you remember the story of David and Goliath, the Philistines and the Israelites squared off in battle with a valley between them. And you might read that story and go, what are they waiting for, right? The armies are there. Why don't they just, why aren't all the Israelites fighting all the Philistines? Why do they just send out the one guy? Why does just David, the young boy, have to go out and fight Goliath, the Philistine champion? Well, it's because it was a battle of champions. If Goliath had won, it would have been like all of the Philistines won. When David won, it was like all of the Israelites won. They got his victory, it was credited to them. And it works the same way in Jesus, that his victory, his perfect victory over sin and his temptation and his earthly life 
his perfect faithfulness at the cross, through his death, the punishment that was laid on him, we're in him in the midst of that. The victory that he experiences over death itself, we experience, and when we believe into him, we're joined with him, not just in his death, but in his resurrection. So that we can look at the cross, we can look at the empty tomb and say, we won, we did it. We have new life in Jesus. And the way that the biblical authors will talk about this is that you have put on Jesus. One place Paul says that your life is hidden with God in Christ. It's as though you are wrapped in the robes of his righteousness, his holiness, his goodness. So when the father looks on you, he sees only the perfect obedience of his son. You know, I wasn't here last week. I was spending some time with my family and uh, we were spending some time with Mickey and Goofy and Donald and all of those uh, people that uh, you see at Disney, right? And so I, I thought to myself, you know, you, you, you wait in line as a parent for your children to meet Mickey Mouse, right? And your kids are so excited to meet Mickey. When they finally see Mickey, like their faces just light up. They can't believe it. They run and give him a hug. And you wonder, what must it be like? to be the person in that Mickey Mouse suit, right? I think it would be impossible. Let's say you were having a terrible day, right? You don't feel good. You're, maybe your stocks are down. You're, uh, you're like, man, it's hot out here and I'm wearing this suit. But then all day, you see the eyes of children light up and they run to go give you a hug. They run to go accept you and love you and delight in you. And it's not because of, I hope there's no kids young enough to be, spoiler alert, right? It's, <laughs> It's not, oh, Gloria, I'm sorry. It's, it's, not, it's not Mickey in the suit, right? It's not Mickey. It's some other guy. And yet in that moment, he is just as loved, just as delighted in, just as celebrated as Mickey. He gets Mickey's status, Mickey's reputation, all the, all the great things Mickey's done for kids, gets accredited to some guy named Stan who's from Central Florida and sweats it out in the middle of Disney World. Right, and to be wrapped in Christ, it's when the Father looks at us, we are just as loved, just as accepted, just as delighted in as the reputation and person of Jesus uh, would be before the Father. We are wrapped in Jesus. And so the first thing that it means uh, to be in Christ is simply that we are in him. But more than that, he is in us. Right, and this might be, if that's hard to understand, this might be the part that's hardest for us to really wrap our minds and our hearts around. Right, that Jesus, the living and resurrected Jesus, dwells in us, with us, in this kind of mystical, unbroken communion and union. Right, it's because of this that Jesus, remember we've said that we are in this part of the Gospel of John, where Jesus is on his way to the cross, He's in Jerusalem enjoying his last moments with his disciples. And yet he can say to them, for your sake, I'm glad that I'm going to die, to be resurrected and to be ascended, that I won't be with you anymore. In fact, it's better for you that I leave you. And sometimes we, you, know, you can look at the early church, you can look at the disciples and go, man, how easy must it have been for them to believe, right? They got to see the miracles, they got to walk and and touch Jesus and see him right there. And yet Jesus says, it's better for you. It's better for you that I go away. 
Because the only thing better than Jesus beside you is Jesus within you, right? Jesus so close that he's, that he's living with you and within you, and he can't be separated from you. And so that's why he says things like, I am the vine, and you are the branches. That's why he says things like in the passage that, uh, that Willie preached just last week, that he sends the Spirit to seal us into Jesus, right? To actuate that union so that he's in us and we're in him. Right, it's the reason that Jesus uh, can say to his disciples, I will ne- after his resurrection, I will never leave you or forsake you and then disappear. Right, you go, well, Jesus, what? It, what you, said, you said you weren't going to leave me or forsake me and now you're gone. But he could say that because his never leaving, his never forsaking, isn't about his physical presence with them. It's about his union with them by faith that he will live in them and among them and with them, that they will have his divine life living uh, in their souls, living within them. And so, uh, on the one hand, this union with Christ that we've talked about is something that is true of you by faith. Right? If you've trusted Jesus, this union with Christ is something that you, you cannot lose. It's yours. Right, when Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age, we believe that he meant it. Right, that it's not him saying, I'm with you always to the end of the age, unless you misbehave, uh, unless you sin a little bit too much, uh, unless you don't believe enough. Right, we don't believe that it's a union that you can fall out of. Jesus has elsewhere said uh, in the Gospel of John that those who are his own, he holds in his hands in such a way that nothing and no one can ever snatch you out of it. Right, so on the one hand, it's a set reality that is yours. And yet on the other hand, the way that Jesus is talking here in John 15, there is something that he's calling us to do. Right? He doesn't just say, hey, it's yours, so don't worry about it. He says, abide in me. Abide in me. Right? I'm the vine, you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But you have to abide in me. You have to, literally, the the word that gets translated abide here. Uh, Elsewhere in John is often just translated stay. Right, when the the Samaritan woman at the well begs Jesus to stay at her town and to continue to share the gospel, to not leave her, but to stay with her. It's the word abide. She says, Jesus, abide with me. Abide here with my people. And so Jesus says, you're in me, and what you need to do is you need to stay in me. You need to abide. In me. What does that mean? What is the part of this that's something that we're called to do, called to experience in more and greater measure? Well, one way, uh, one great way uh, that an Oxford preacher named Walter Meller put it, he says that the labor that we have to do in abiding with Christ is that we labor to be brought near. Right? So, so get this you, you labor, there is a work that you do. And yet the work that you do is to let Jesus gather you to him. It's not ultimately your work that brings you to Jesus. It's putting yourself in a position where Jesus can gather you to himself. John Calvin, uh, again, said, Let us labor more to feel Christ living in us. Right? You can't labor to make Christ live in you. But there is something of the experience of living with Christ that is up to a certain posture in your own life. It's up to the way that you approach Jesus. Again, John Owen, I think, is helpful here. He distinguished between two things. 
Union with Christ, which is ours, which is sealed, which is one. And our communion with God through Christ. So he says there's nothing, that, there, there's nothing you can lose in your union with Christ. But your communion with God can be affected, right? It can be affected by your sin. There's times where we sin and the guilt of our sin makes God seem very different, very distant from us. We feel weighed down by guilt, right? There's moments when we pray or when we read God's word that it's not that reading God's word somehow evokes God's presence or makes you more in Christ, but there is something of our experience of communion with God that grows as we consciously make, make the effort to abide with him, to dwell with him, to live with him. And so there is this posture of abiding Uh, that we're called to do. It's interesting to look in the Gospel of John. John tells us what to do to abide, right? If you just look and track the different places that Jesus uses this word, stay or abide, we can learn what it means, what he calls us to, to abide. We see it the first time in John chapter 1 where Philip and Nathaniel, the first disciples, they hear John the Baptist preach, behold the Lamb of God. And they go to Jesus, and they start talking with him. They start getting to know him. And they say, Jesus, where are you staying? Where are you abiding? Show us so that we can stay with you. Right? The first thing that it means to abide with Jesus is to hear the gospel. It's to hear the, in this case, the the preaching of the gospel through John. And to go to Jesus to stay with him, to to pray to him, to talk with him, and to ask to live with him. Right? That's the very basic beginning of the Christian life. It's to hear the announcement of good news, to respond by speaking to Jesus and to say, Jesus, stay. Jesus, let's abide. Me and you and you and me. So the first thing that it means is simply to respond to the good news if you never have before and to say, yes, Jesus, I want to bind my life with yours. I want to stay with you where you are forever. It means to rest in that. So that's the first place abide is used. In John chapter 6, Jesus uses it again of the communion meal that we're about to share in just a little while. He says, if anyone, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. That the sharing of this meal together is a very real way that we abide, that we stay and dwell with Jesus. In John chapter 8, Jesus says, if anyone abides by my word, he will not see death, right? That to abide in Jesus means to abide in his word. It means to internalize it, to read it. Not simply in a way to study it or to understand it more, although that's very important, but to take it into yourself and to let it inform your life and your your life with God, to abide in the word of Jesus. And then now in John 15, we learn that one thing that it means is that we love one another. Right, that to abide in Jesus is to love one another as I have loved you. That when the church, uh, when the people of God love one another sacrificially, we love one another and serve one another and give ourselves to one another. That's one of the ways that we together abide in Jesus. And so union with Christ. You are in Jesus, wrapped in him, and he is in you living and abiding within you. We should long to feel it more, to experience more deeply the communion that Jesus has brought uh, into our lives with, by the Spirit with the Father. And to stretch our imaginations. 
right? To begin to ask that God would help us to live in this life as though the most fundamental thing about us is that we are in Christ. That there is no more Dave in and of himself. There is only Dave in Christ. You, you exist hidden with God in Christ. And we should seek to abide in that, to live with an awareness of that. Jesus tells us that this is the thing. If you ever wonder what God is doing in your life, right? I think we've all wondered that at times, right? You experience suffering. Maybe you experience difficulty. You experience pain in your relationships. Maybe you experience illness. And it's very easy, isn't it, for us to go, what is God doing in my life? Why are these things coming about? These things that don't make sense to us. And Jesus tells us that what God is doing always and everywhere in your life is seeking to help you to abide more deeply in Jesus, right? That he wants to strip away all of those other things that you are tempted to abide in, all of those other things and places where you're you're tempted to find your worth and your value, your stability and your comfort. That's what Jesus calls here pruning, right? He says that everyone... Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it bear, may bear more fruit. Right? That Jesus, the, the pain in our lives very often is the cutting of the vine dresser. The one who's taking away those parts of ourselves, those other attachments, that need to be stripped away so that we can rest more fully in Jesus. Graham Greene, the author, uh, refers to God as the constant gardener. That he's a God who is constantly gardening in our lives. Feeding us and watering us, yes. Uh, But also snipping away those parts of our lives that need to fall away so that we can bear more and more abundant fruit. Jesus tells us that the fruit that we are meant to bear is the fruit of love. The fruit of loving our our friends, the fruit of loving our church community, the, the, the fruit of loving our neighbors in such a way that it brings honor and glory to God. You know, this metaphor that Jesus uses here, I am the vine, you are the branches, immediately would have called uh, to mind in his hearers uh, one of the central metaphors of the Old Testament that God used of the people of Israel, that they were his vineyard. Isaiah chapter 5 tells the story of God planting a vineyard in Israel. Jeremiah chapter 2 tells the story of, of uh, of him planting the vineyard and coming to look for fruit from his vineyard but not finding it. Right, one of the central symbols of national Israel was the, the, uh, the vineyard, the vine. And yet Israel was placed, was tended by God, placed uh, there in the promised land, meant to bear fruit for the nations, but it failed. Right? It wasn't faithful to God. It became a wild vine that didn't bear fruit. And so when Jesus says, I am the true vine, he's saying, I am the new Israel. I'm the new people of God. And you, as you're grafted into me, have life. You can grow faithful and strong to God in my vine so that we, the church, together, can bear the fruit of love wherever it is that he's planted us. No longer constrained just to Israel, but in out-of-the-way places all around the world, even here in Jacksonville, that we, as as we are abiding in Christ, as we rest in him, as he prunes us, as we cling to him, we can bear the fruit, bear the fruit of God's love 
to our neighborhood, to our city, and to our world. Let's pray to that end. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would help us uh, to rest and to abide in you. Lord, we confess uh, that our hearts wander. That instead of resting in our perfect union with Christ, we wander off and go seeking after life in other places. Help us, Lord Jesus, to rest wrapped in your righteousness, to know that we are clothed in you. And Lord, help us to experience, to feel, and to live more and more of your divine life making its home, your home, in us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.